This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I think that what technology is best for in this moment, the technology we have available to us, is allowing people to form groups to undertake collective efforts. That if you can use technology to stitch together political groups, then you can start to reverse the much broader trends. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat the four-time populist like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. I know I've talked about Brexit before on this podcast. I've talked before about how a movement can radicalize, about how limits which everybody thought existed in the political system can turn out not to hold. But it is still remarkable what has been going on in the United Kingdom recently. Somebody recently unearthed a poll from 2010 which showed that 0.4% of Brits regarded Britain's membership in the European Union as the most pressing political issue at the time. Brexit then became the dividing issue of a country when David Cameron called a referendum, but at the time, most advocates of it we're talking about something which by today's standards seems like a very moderate type of Brexit. Membership in the single market was attractive to many of them. In any case, they imagined a big trade deal with the European Union. Now we are seeing those red lines go away. The Brexitists framing anything other than a complete withdrawal from the European Union in all its facets as a betrayal of the vote of the people and an incredibly ineffectual opposition failing to frame the choice that faces people in the United Kingdom. So the experience of Brexit has important stakes and lessons for the United Kingdom. It demonstrates how hard it is for a referendum to actually resolve a complicated political issue when there is more than two obvious options. But perhaps most importantly, it should make us here in the United States and in other countries around the world a little less sanguine about the way in which our institutions would come to our rescue in a similar circumstance. Today, I'm really excited to have Corey Doctorow on the podcast. Corey is a true man of too many talents. He is a fiction writer, a nonfiction writer. He is both one of the people who have shaped the internet from an early moment as one of the proponents of a Creative Commons license and somebody who has for a good number of years been sounding the alarm bell for some of the ways in which the internet may turn into a much more dangerous Force. His next book of science fiction short stories called Radicalized is coming out very soon. We had a really wide-ranging conversation about both the risks of the internet and some of the hopes we should invest in it. I hope you enjoyed. Welcome to the podcast, Corey. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. 
Corey, you're a really fascinating figure in all of this, both because you are an important voice in the blogosphere and with nonfiction work, but also obviously a celebrated fiction writer, and because you are in some ways quite utopian about all of this and in other ways super critical about the internet and some of the ways in which Silicon Valley is shaping the world. And so I kind of want to start there. I mean, what at the moment in your life when you were most enthusiastic about what all of these new technologies would do for the world, how would you have expressed your hopes at that point? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that the fear and hope of the internet has always related to the extent to which it decentralizes or centralizes power and authority. I politically am someone who believes that whatever system we end up with, the more pluralistic it is, the more broad the power to make decisions is spread and the more accountable it is to the polity that it represents, the more likely it is that we'll get policies that are good in the sense of being evidence-driven and, and promoting the general welfare and increasing human thriving. And so at its best, the thing that I hoped for for the internet was that it would give us a future where there was power spread among a very broad base of people. I think that if you look at things like the STEM education movement, sure, there are some people within that movement who talk about it in a purely instrumental way. You know, you should learn to program because then you'll get a good job. But its origins are in, you know, what you might call seizing the means of information. The idea that unless you can program, you will be programmed, to use Douglas Rushkoff's term. And that is my fear as well, right? It's that we won't seize the means of information, that a tool that can be used to decentralize power will instead be used to centralize it, that systems that we could configure to allow us to have more control over ourselves and to find common cause with others will instead be hijacked to channel us into courses of action that preserve the status quo for people who are the beneficiaries of earlier technological revolutions and to spread out the gap between the richest and the poorest and thus the gap between the decision-making so that it becomes less and less pluralistic and more and more parochial, more and more about preserving the grifts of hustlers who make their money on coal or on GMO pesticide hustles, which is not to say that GMOs are bad, but rather that this proprietary treatment of them is bad, or any of the other hustles that kind of mark out our current political climate. That makes a lot of sense to me. It's also a little abstract. So how did you think that the internet might bring that more pluralistic, more democratic, more accountable system about? What is it about this technology which might have allowed us to do that? Well, you know, as William Gibson says, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. So we can pull some examples of that out right now and show how the internet does that, which is not to apologize for all the ways in which the internet has failed to decentralize us, but rather to point out this dual nature. So for example, small money crowdfunding for political campaigns and other kind of ventures. That is a canonical example. There was a good piece in The Intercept this week as we record in late January about a small-time outsider who was rebuffed by the democratic establishment, but who has developed this very effective campaigning tool for fundraising for working-class candidates who don't have a Rolodex full of rich people to support their primary challenges, and how a bunch of the insurgent people who come from non-traditional political backgrounds in the last election, in the 2018 elections, used his tool to raise money from other people. So that's a really good example. Another one would be something like They Work For You in the United Kingdom, which is a website 
that scrapes the Hansard, which is the parliamentary record that is technically under parliamentary copyright and thus off limits to that kind of scraping, but which the uh, parliament has turned a blind eye to and now endorses through the clerk of the parliament. And it takes all of the parliamentary record and turns it into something that looks like a Facebook feed, where each politician has a little icon, what they said, you can comment on it, Hmm. you can turn that comment into an email to them, and then there's league tables of how responsive they are to it. And they have now done this for all levels of government, starting with your local councillor and going all the way up to your member of the European Parliament. And, you know, again, that's a tool for holding people accountable. Yeah, so I wonder whether it is or not. So 20, 25 years ago, the general consensus was that we need to have much more open information about what the government is doing. And that if only we knew sort of which politician is hanging around with which lobbyist, suddenly all of these sort of private, secret, often nefarious interests would be laid bare and the voters would rebel so that politicians would no longer spend so much time with lobbyists. Well, it's turned out that even further reporting requirements have been upped hugely. There's a lot more information about all of this stuff. Actually, it hasn't really made the system that much cleaner. It certainly hasn't reduced the influence of lobbyists. And part of the reason for that is the constraints on the attention and, frankly, the political interest of average citizens. So when you go back to somebody like Benjamin Constant in the 19th century and his argument for why, under modern circumstances, we can't really aim for the kind of liberties that the ancients enjoyed, it is all about the need to earn a living, the distraction from all kinds of other entertainments we have in our societies. And that hasn't really changed. And so I sometimes wonder, you know, when people say, hey, you know, it's amazing. You can turn the Hansard into this kind of tool and you can see that sounds great. And I would love to use that tool because I am obsessed with politics and part of my professional living comes from thinking about politics. But I just wonder whether we've always exaggerated how much that was going to change since most citizens aren't that interested in politics. They switch on once every four years when there's an election coming around and they'll think about it a little bit and they have their views and they have their interests, but they're not going to be reading this handset just because it's beautifully turned into a Facebook-style feed. So I think that you're making a category error. The fact that something is a necessary precondition does not mean that it's a sufficient precondition. I mean, I don't think that you would argue that if people only knew less about politics, they'd be more engaged with it. Or if it was harder to find out how politicians and lobbyists were mixing or what your politician was saying or doing on your behalf, that that would be a way to increase public engagement. And in fact, what we've seen is something that kind of points to an alternate explanation. And it's one that requires that we broaden the frame from tech and talk more about the conditions under which tech has grown up. Because remember, the Apple II Plus was released the year that Ronald Reagan was elected. And that we've lived through not just 40 years of tech, but 40 years of dismantling of antitrust, of the encouragement of the growth of very large firms, widening inequality, and political outcomes that are much more about the interests of tiny parochial elites and not a broader group of the population. And, you know, what we saw in 2018, for example, was that the turnout and the engagement with everyday political issues vastly increased on the one hand when they were made more salient, because obviously we're living through something of a crisis and that has made people more interested, but also when there's a genuine alternative. You know, if you look at the insurgent candidates, even the ones I disagree with, they are saying things that have been outside of the traditional discourse. And so the question is, is the problem merely that people aren't interested or that when people understand that their vote doesn't count, 
that they can only vote between options, neither of which seem very good to them, that they don't bother to engage. And as soon as you give them meaningful options, that engagement shoots way up. Yeah. So look, let's distinguish between two different things. I mean, one is within the broad levels of engagement and political interest that we've historically found in systems of representative government. I think for a long time, we've been at the low end, both in the United States compared to some other countries, but also today, as opposed to perhaps 20 or 30 years ago. And I think there's absolutely remedies for that. And one of those remedies is to make information more easily available. And something like this digitized handset can be a tool for that. Another thing certainly is to make sure that we have vigorous political debates with candidates who have sufficiently different opinions from each other and proposals from each other, that it energizes people to feel like their vote is going to matter. But a lot of the hopes that technology is going to fundamentally transform our politics and really allow us to have a form of direct control and accountability that we haven't historically had, I think is premised on the idea of uh, order of magnitude difference. That if only we could all sort of go online and vote on everything and have all this information, suddenly everybody is going to make the voices heard. And, and it always assumes that they have developed voices on particular political issues and that they're raring to go and express that. And that, it seems to me, is, is just not true for most of the bulk of the population. And outside of moments of acute crisis, because people feel threatened, isn't going to be true. You know, I think that that is, again, excluding a third possibility here, which is that, you know, in a complicated technical world, it's impossible to have an informed opinion about every issue that touches on you. But it is possible to have an informed opinion that you're very passionate about, about what heuristic you use to nominate experts to advise you on those, whether that's, you know, understanding the basis for deciding whether you're going to trust the oncologist who tells you that you need chemotherapy or understanding whether or not you trust the regulator who has said that the fact that your tap water is on fire isn't a risk to your health. And I'm willing to stipulate that there will be things that seem really alarming that turn out not to be, right? I do think that probably flammable tap water is a bad thing, but there will be things on the order of flammable tap water that I will object to. And the way that I'll be able to, to parse out the difference one and the other is not by becoming an expert in every domain, but by having the freedom to nominate experts to act on my behalf. And so on the one hand, we have like representative democracy that does that, and we hope that it's accountable and legitimate. But, you know, one of the things that technology does is it makes possible new forms of representative democracy. So if you look at the liquid democracy platform that the pirate parties have used, you know, they allow for real-time delegation and de-delegation and re-delegation of votes. So I can nominate Naomi Klein to be my environmental expert, but she can nominate a hydrologist to be her water expert. And she transfers all of my votes to her. So this doesn't turn us into eternal clickers who are being pinged a thousand times a day to understand and then make an informed judgment about every issue in a complicated technical society. But rather, it allows us to fluidly delegate our authority on a real-time or on a kind of once-and-a-quarter basis or however often we want to to decide what we're going to do. And we get to engage on the issues that matter to us. So, so what's interesting about the liquid democracy proposal, which I've thought about a bit, I used to teach a class on democracy in the digital age in which I had students write essays about this in good part. It's a very clever way of dodging the underlying dilemma that I was trying to point out, right? So 
either you have systems in which we do vote on everything all the time and we are actually expressing our voice in a very direct way and we can be said to be ruling ourselves in a substantive way, but it requires tremendous attention and time, which most people are unwilling to devoid. Or we have a systems of representative democracy or other forms of technocracy or delegated rule in which we have a little bit of choice of who speaks for us and we might have to think a little bit about who we do want to speak for us, but that's a very episodic thing. We don't have much influence in the middle. And so what something like liquid democracy says is, hey, you get a vote on everything, but you can also delegate your vote. And so if you are one of those people like Corey and Yasha who are really obsessed with politics and they want to think about this all the time, then you might vote on everything or at least in the areas that you know a lot about, you're going to vote on everything. And then, uh, you know, if you're not or if there's areas you don't really know much about, then you can delegate that vote and somebody else takes the decision for you. I think that's a really clever way of making a system that's fluid enough so that each person can engage at the level at which they are interested in. I still fear that something like liquid democracy would end up with most people delegating in such a way that you don't substantively get something as much more accountable and as much more legitimate as the most utopian set of people who invest this idea with the potential of transforming our politics might want to believe. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So we've talked some about your hopes. Before we get completely stuck into liquid democracy, what are your fears? I mean, whichever night you woke up with the most pessimism or the most dread about what these technologies are going to do to our world and our politics, what was that nightmare vision? Well, I think that, you know, we can easily just refer to Orwell here and say that when technology is designed to control its users rather than to be controlled by its users... And when that technology is all pervasive, the potential for mischief is rather great. I'm probably much more sanguine than the average person about the raw manipulation of people through technology. I think that mm. it's naive so? to, to look at... Well, so, you know, a lot of people listened to all of the public and private utterances of Cambridge Analytica and concluded that they were bullshitters about everything except for their sales brochures. <laughs> and they said, oh, when Cambridge Analytica promises that they have a machine learning method for turning Facebook into a mind control ray that can make normal people into racists, that's probably true. Everything else is rubbish, but that's probably true. And I think actually what they've done is something much simpler and much more in line with what Facebook is good at, which is they found people with hard to locate traits that are thinly diffused in the general population. In this case, people who are racist and would like to vote for Donald Trump. And rather than convincing sensible people to be racist, they convince racists that Donald Trump was probably good for them, which is a much easier lift and a much less alarming turn of events to recognize that if you can find people who are three quarters of the way to where you want them to be, you might be able to reason them even rather than manipulate them. Because I think they're right, right? I think Cambridge Analytica is right. So just to understand the distinction you're drawing, it's sort of from like, you know, I'm, I don't have any kids and some organization claims that they have found a marketing tool that's going to make me buy diapers, which seems sort of unlikely, 
to, hey, you know, they have a tool to find the person who is actually a parent of young kids and who, you know, has been using Pampers but uh, actually happens to already have expressed dissatisfaction with it. And now we're going to mm -hmm. use whichever marketing tools to make them go the extra way to go to whoever the biggest competitor of Pampers is, right? Or to use a very widespread example... There's this story about how Target or Walgreens or Walmart figured out that a young woman was pregnant before her parents knew about it and started sending pregnancy brochures to the house. And the way that they figured this out was by noticing that she was buying folic acid. And folic acid is a nutritional supplement widely recommended for women who are gestating fetuses. And this is, in fact, like the world's least impressive act of prediction. Right, right. right. It's, it's, it's like it's an extremely well-known correlate. It's like, oh, look, everybody is carrying an umbrella. I wonder if it's going to rain later today. Yeah, exactly. That guy in the MAGA hat probably is a racist, right? Like, it's just not that hard to make that assumption. But if you don't know much about it, right, if you've never been in merchandising, that might seem like a really genuine act of sorcery. So the story is striking because it shows that a very simple thing can have a lot of power, right? So if you were a pharmacist and somebody came in and bought folic acid and then he said, hey, I think this person is probably pregnant, nobody would have been like, whoa, the modern world, right? Mm. Straightforward. Mm. But you take this very simple method, which is not mind reading, it's not any of the sort of bullshit stuff that Cambridge Analytica claims for itself. And you have all the data on who just bought folic acid and you have a bunch of other tools, it, it potentially can have a huge impact. So I guess my question to you is, the fact that they use this much more simple mechanism, are you saying that does substantively limit what they can do with it? Or are you saying precisely, hey, you know what, what they showed is you can use stuff that's very straightforward, but it's not mind reading, it's not all that fancy, but it can have a huge impact. I'm just saying that political manipulation is much less concerning to me than other forms of abusive technology. In general, I think stimulus regresses to the mean for most people. So like if you look at, say, something like Farmville, which, you know, is a game designed to be really habituating. It uses all these casino mechanics. And just like a casino game, I'm sure that you at one point had an experience like this where the first time you run into a fruit machine, a slot machine, you put some money in it and it seemed weirdly compelling for a while. And then you realize that it was actually kind of boring and you probably haven't been tempted to it. That's like most people's story, right? And the thing that keeps Las Vegas's doors open is that there's a tiny minority of people, like a, you know, sort of six sigma vulnerability who after playing slot machines can't stop, hmm. cash in their kids' college funds, go out and buy some adult diapers and then just stand at the machines for the rest of their lives, soiling themselves until all their money is gone, right? I mean, that's... Thank you for bringing up the tone of a podcast. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and, I, I, and I think that, you know, we look at those people and we assume that they are bellwethers as opposed to outliers. Right, right. And so I think that the real concern is not so much political manipulation. And there are these moral panics, particularly about the digital world. I mean, I remember years and years ago when some relative, it may have been my mom, asked me whether, you know, I and all of my friends are no longer having a social life because we're just spending our time on second life, mm. which, you know, hasn't sure, quite sure. turned up to be the apocalypse that the media claimed at the time. And, you know, to go back to our earlier conversation, I think the reason people are amenable to this kind of manipulation is not because of technology. It's because we've arrived at a moment of kind of epistemological incoherence where deciding which experts to trust is really hard because the system is manifestly tilted towards industrial interests and the interests of parochial minorities. A good example is anti-vax, right? So someone says, hey, uh, pharma is super concentrated. 
They do not act in the public interest and their regulators are totally beholden to them and let them get away with murder. All of those things are like obviously true. And so when they go on to say, and that's why, you know, you shouldn't vaccinate your kids, at least on its face, it's not a ridiculous statement. Because clearly we have a lot of political manipulation, but it's not because of technology. It's because of corruption in the political system that has produced this incoherence about whether you should trust experts. Well, but I wonder whether the anti-vax point actually directs us in the other direction. So I can see how some of the very real failings of our current political system makes it easier for anti-vaxxers to have a platform. And in fact, it seems to me that conspiracy theories often thrive precisely in situations when people feel they have reason to distrust the political system. And so the growth of conspiracy theories should probably make us quite concerned about whether we're delivering for people in the right way. But look, 20, 25 years ago, you might have gotten some crank going on about how vicious and corrupt the pharma industry is. And that is why, you know, vaccines are all invented or, you know, make your kids autistic or whatever the claims are. But they would never have gotten a platform in the big mass media. They would not have been allowed to speak on CBS or NPR they would not have been allowed to write an op-ed in the New York Times. And so as a result, their potential audience would have been quite limited. They could go and, you know, tell the family about this over Thanksgiving and knock on the neighbor's door and go on about it. But the spread of this kind of claim would have run up against some very hard gatekeepers. And now, of course, that's no longer the case because people, to such an extent, get the information initially from websites and then from social media and YouTube and so on, there's nobody there who can say, hey, you know what, I have a complicated model of who to trust and not to trust. And it includes that I will, you know, make sure that some doctor agrees with it and it turns out that no doctor agrees with it. So I'm just not going to give you that platform. YouTube does not make that discrimination. And surely that structural difference in our modes of communication does actually make it easier for the anti-vaxxer to find a mass hearing. But I think you're describing a contrafactual because that's not how anti-vax spread. Anti-vax spread partly on social media, but partly because Jenny McCarthy went on CNN and pimped anti-vax. And the BBC, for the longest time, pursued this vision of balance, which it had been bullied into in the face of austerity, which was part of this wider program of inequality, in which every time climate change, anti-vax, or Brexit was mentioned, they would find someone, and because these are such fringe views, they would find someone really fringy to come on and give, quote, the other side. And the outcome of that was to totally legitimize something that would have otherwise been a dumb YouTube meme. Now, it's true that Pizzagate spread without that, but Pizzagate is a later phenomenon that arises after the epistemological incoherence sets in. And I think that we do live in a moment where it's very hard to know which expert to trust. And the, the countervailing force that these non-gate-kept media have is it gives you somewhere that's not the New York Times to say, by the way, there are no weapons of mass destruction, which, you know, relative to all these other conspiracy theories, as awful as they are, the weapons of mass destruction conspiracy theories has got the biggest death toll of anything in this century so far. And that hoax was entirely driven by, you know, mainstream, gate-kept, responsible media run by grown-ups and accountable to its shareholders. The only place we had to say there are no weapons of mass destruction was outside of the traditional media. So if you think that this fear of, you know, Cambridge Analytica having discovered the deep human secret of how to manipulate minds into things they were not at all believing a moment ago is hugely overstated, 
what are the fears that do keep you awake at night? What are the fears do you think we should take seriously? So I fear the traditional ills of surveillance, right? So that would be things like being able to identify and neutralize political threats before they could participate in discourse and create mass movements. You know, I often think of Ed Snowden's point that in our lifetimes, a bunch of things that we think of as normal and right were unlawful, whether that's, you know, smoking marijuana or being married to someone of the same gender as you. And the way that we got to these reforms where people are allowed to do normal and good things was not by forcing everybody to disclose all of the facts of their life immediately. It's by letting people have a private life where they can talk about their choices and their secrets in a manner and time of their choosing in order to recruit allies who become part of a mass movement. So I'm trying to understand this claim because obviously at the time when there was no same-sex marriage in this country and at the time when pot was illegal, as it still is in, in certain ways, people always had the right to advocate for those things to be changed, right? Yeah. So we had the idea of freedom of speech, and that uh, made it possible for people to say, hey, this is a really unjust law. But I guess you're saying that if people didn't know any gay people, if there were no people who could live a homosexuality openly and make others more comfortable with that idea, make them understand what it is to be homosexual, then the greater acceptability of this would never have percolated. I, I'm trying to understand the nature of a claim. Not quite. No, it's more like if I am gay and I hope that you, my father, my son, my loved one, will join me in advocating for my cause, there is a time and a place where I can tell you about the secret about myself, where I can come out to you that will maximize the chance that you and I will form an alliance. And the best situated person to know when to disclose that fact about their life is the person whose fact it is. And the non-consensual disclosure of the socially unacceptable secrets of your life has the opposite effect in many cases. Rather than recruiting people who don't share your secret and who are not vulnerable to retaliation to act as your ally, instead it turns them against you, I see. right? Because you, can, you can't frame the discussion in the way that makes sense. You know, whether that's something as simple as like, when your dad and you go away on a fishing trip and things are mellow and you sit down, you talk about it and, you know, you got a couple of days together away from civilization to figure it out, then you may have a chance of bringing your dad in as your ally, as opposed to, like, for example, your dad and you having that argument at the Christmas table while your grandmother is there telling him that he's raised a pervert and what did he do wrong. Right, right. It's just obvious that the space to choose the time and manner of the disclosure of the facts of your life is very important. Hmm. And that the non-consensual disclosure of those facts leads to atomization and undermines the cause of human liberation. And what's the non-consensual disclosure of those facts in this metaphor? Is it just people calling you out for stuff on Twitter and Facebook? Is it a state surveillance mechanism, which would make law enforcement much better able to know that you're smoking pot, for example. How are you thinking about technology changing this background equilibrium in such a way that you can no longer determine the time and the mode of your disclosure? So on the one hand, you can totally see this with states and states, particularly in their relationship with Facebook, because Facebook has this real names policy that punishes people who use the service to communicate with others without disclosing an identity that's traceable to them. 
And so the Facebook real names policy has outed a bunch of people who are trans. It's outed a bunch of people who are gay. It's outed a bunch of people who are sex workers. Then you could look at things like the militia checkpoints in Egypt and Syria, where people were pulled over and forced to log into Facebook so that militias could see who their friends were Mm -hmm. and then either execute them or let them go. Right. Mm. So. All of that and more is there, but also, you know, commercial disclosures. So whether that's Facebook identifying you and marketing to you as a sex worker, or as a gay person, and that inadvertently outing you to your family or your employer or things like the ransom businesses, you know, you have these mugshots websites that try to game your mugshot of your traffic stop or your DUI or whatever into the highest rank for you Hmm. uh, and then charge you $500 to remove your name. Hmm. So all of these and more are the ways that this can go wrong. And that's just on the terms of the social progress. And then the other things are things like stalkerware, where we have increased use of this by vengeful spouses and other abusers who put software on phones of their victims and use it to totally control their life. We have grifters and criminals using it in lots of ways. So, you know, you can see this in the phenomenon of ratting. There are remote access Trojans where people put software on your computer that allows them to covertly operate your webcam. They capture things like incidental nudity, and then they blackmail you into either performing sex acts or into giving them cash on penalty of that material being released to your social media. And of course, when they take control of your computer, they also hijack your social media passwords. And then the whole spectrum of things that Shoshana Zuboff calls uh, surveillance capitalism and the use of surveillance to not manipulate you into doing things that you wouldn't otherwise do, but to like put the thumb on the scales for say one vendor. So Amazon can use surveillance of its platform to figure out how to steer you from a product that you might prefer to a lower quality product that it surfaces in its search results that it gets a bigger kickback Hmm. from. Google has just been punished for this by the European Union with some stonkingly big fines. Hmm. And so, you know, there's this whole range of surveillance problems and and we're still in surveillance. There's a whole other domain, which is control. But yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, this is giving me plenty of nightmares for for tonight. Thank you very much. Um, Is that it or is this a big set of other things? And from what you just said, it sounds like you also think there's a completely separate realm of risks and fears around what you call control. What do you mean by that? Yeah. And so I would say that this is not completely separate. I would say that control, inequality and surveillance are intimately related to one another Mm. in every possible way. But control is the design of technologies to control their users rather than to be controlled by their users. So an example of that might be your phone is designed to only allow you to install software from the Apple App Store and not from a third party app store. And Apple will give all kinds of arguments about why they should be allowed to do this, but it's impossible to ignore the fact that Apple also gets 30% of the money that changes hands when you buy software and when you spend money using that software by dint of operating this like non-consensual two-sided marketplace. This spreads out into things like spare parts, where the parts for your car engine increasingly use chips that allow them to detect whether they've been installed by first-party mechanics or third-party mechanics, Mm. or whether they're first-party parts or third-party parts. 
and to refuse to work. So these are not parts that can't work. They're parts that won't work when when they're in your device. John Deere very famously does this with its tractors. And, you know, this starts to play into surveillance. So, for example, you can't choose to install third-party apps on your iPhone, which means that when the Chinese government orders Apple to block all VPNs that it can't spy on, then you can't install a VPN that Hmm. hasn't been approved by Apple, which means you can't install a non-surveilling VPN. That's interesting because I was just going to ask, you know, a lot of what you were just talking about sounds like a concern that I would usually frame around monopoly and perhaps monopsony and the sort of economic impact of that, which of course is important and serious. But I guess you're adding this extra element, which is that it does mean that if you then get control of the one master system, it becomes incredibly hard to circumvent. And that poses a risk of the concentration of political power, which goes beyond the risk of a concentration of economic power implicit in this sort of current debate around monopoly and monopsony. Oh, it's even worse than that. Yes, it's monopolistic. It concentrates power, concentrates political power. It ties into authoritarian systems of control. So, for example, imagine backdooring equipment with complicity from the manufacturer, and now states can operate surveillance meshes that include your thermostat and the voting machine you used and your car and everything else. And we already see that with things like stingrays and IMCI catchers that monitor signals from your cell phone to track you non-consensually as you move through time and space. And then add to all of that, that if you want to design a device that a user can't reconfigure, a device that treats its user as its adversary, you necessarily must obfuscate that device's functioning, and you must use both legal and technical tools to prevent people from disclosing how it works. So in other words, if you want to install third-party software on your phone, and your phone says, I can't let you do that, Dave. And there's an icon on your phone's home screen labeled HAL 9000. Mm. But you can disable I can't let you do that, Dave, by dragging the HAL 9000 icon into the trash. You will. And so the only way that this software can work is by acting as though it's malicious software. And malicious software goes to enormous pains to hide itself from your computer's process monitor, to hide itself from your computer's file manager. If you go and list out your files, you can't find the file that corresponds to the malicious software. If you list out your processes, it hides those. And increasingly, our devices are built in this way to have processes that run that are by design not monitorable or terminatable by the owner of the device, Hmm. which means that anyone who's malicious, right? So now we're like leaving aside governments who are working in concert with manufacturers or manufacturers who don't have your best interests at heart, but just petty grifters who figure out how to subvert that mechanism now have a means of running software on devices that you may be putting your body into because your car is a computer you put your body into, or you may be putting inside your body like an artificial pancreas, you know, a continuous glucose monitor and a insulin pump that by design, you can't even see that that software is running. And if you know it's running, you can't terminate it. And it gets worse than that because the laws that protect this stuff, notably the Digital Millennium Copyright Act of 1998, which is like meant to prevent you from modifying your DVD player to make it region-free, are so broadly written that they hold out criminal penalties of five-year prison sentences and a $500,000 fine for a first offense for people who publish defects Hmm. in systems that protect copyrights. And so now 
you have unauditable attack surfaces in every device that is seeking to monopolize a market, which is increasingly every device. And those unauditable attack surfaces, the defects in them can't be disclosed to you until they're so widely exploited that no one even bothers to deny them anymore. And so it's only once you've been totally compromised that you get to know that your thermostat is spying on you or that your car can be remotely driven over the internet as 1.25 million Jeeps had to be recalled over or any of the other hosts of horribles that should be science fiction and aren't that these devices designed to treat you as their adversary can get up to when they're under the power of someone else. So I got to tell you that unfortunately I find your list of potential hopes about the internet to be interesting and compelling, but much less convincing than this very vivid and rather long list of a serious dangers from it. And what you've just been saying, I think, tracks with some of the things in the everyday discourse about the potential dangers of digital technology that I and probably most listeners to this podcast are aware of. But there's also a real novelty to how you're thinking about that, which makes me take this even more seriously. So I'm now scared into action. And I want to think, you know, how do we deal with some of those dangers? How do we counteract those risks? How do we make sure that the internet is not going to be used to those terrible purposes? And I don't really know how to start. I know you've been thinking a lot about a new initiative in, in Europe to try and regulate some of this stuff in the most ambitious way so far. Tell us, first of all, what is the lay of the land? I mean, are there good initiatives? Can states actually govern this at all? How should we start to think about containing these risks through political action? So one of the great theorists of this stuff is a lawyer and activist named Lawrence Lessig. And Lessig identifies these four forces that he says operate on society. There's code, which is like what technology can do. There's law, what's lawful. There's markets, what's profitable. And there's norms, what's socially acceptable. And what I find very useful about this framework is that rather than saying, to solve our problem, we do this. Instead, what it gives us is a set of heuristics that we can deploy when we come to an impasse. So right now, the lay of the land is very bad, right? We are in a situation where big tech companies lobby like crazy to maintain these, and they have found constituencies, not just in the tech sector, but in every sector. So, you know, we talk about tech and entertainment, for example, as often being in opposition, and sometimes they do butt heads in policy forums. But by and large, the tech sector would like these proprietary technologies to lock people into their ecosystem in the same way that the entertainment sector would like proprietary technologies to make sure that when, you know, your DVDs are sunsetted and you buy a new device that you can't just transfer the movies you bought on DVD into that new ecosystem hmm. and make you buy them all again the way you did when you had to, you know, replace your cassettes with CDs. Right, right. And so combine that with John Deere and the voting machine vendors and medical implant people and there's an almost unimaginably vast constituency for perverting technology to control you. And so this is where Lessig's theory comes in. When you run up against the limits of what you can do say politically, because mostly our legislatures are not very good on this stuff, we have axes of freedom on other dimensions. So maybe we use norms to try and open a political space. And a good example of that would be the fight over the European Union's copyright directive, where right now there's this bonkers proposal to require all platforms that allow for public discourse, anywhere where someone might post something that might uh -huh. be copyrighted, including the server that sent this podcast to the person listening to it, right? Every one of those will have to operate a filter 
that filter will have to have a kind of wide open database that anyone can throw anything into and say, this is my copyright, don't allow it to appear on the internet. There'll be no checks and balances for that database and no penalties for putting things in it that you should know or that you do know are not your copyright. Um, It will cost hundreds of millions of euros per company to implement this. So it'll snuff out all the small European companies and just leave the five American big tech companies in their wake. And it will allow for both inadvertent and deliberate censorship on a scale that's hard to imagine. And so where we were unable to merely get a political outcome, because the politician who's backing this is a German MEP called Axel Voss, and he's beholden to a small industrial group, and, and that's why he's backing it. We were able instead to make mass campaigns. We got 4 million internet users in Europe to write to their parliamentarians and not just generically write to their parliamentarians, but write to their parliamentarians and remind them that there are EU elections in May. So for the most part, they may not care about this kind of petition, but in the run-up to May, they do. And we also made a point of pointing out that the European Union has spent a lot of time saying that people should engage more with its policies and that Brexit is what happens when people lose faith in the European Union. And we have been able to make that part of the discourse that the European Union can't afford to turn its back on 4 million people, not because of the election necessarily, but because the credibility of the institution requires that it be visibly responsive to popular will. And so, you know, we're able to use normative arguments to affect political change that we would have otherwise not been able to affect through, say, business models, because Mm. there just aren't companies big enough to resist this. You know, it turned out this morning as we record this, there was a leak from Facebook that showed that Facebook was quietly lobbying the European Commission in favor of this, basically on the grounds that it can afford it and none of its competitors can. Huh, wow. And so we can't rely on big tech to save us from big content. You know, big tech and big content are just, you know, it's it's like the last, but more or well, you look at the last scene of Animal Farm, you look from the pigs to the farmers and the farmers to the pigs and you can't tell the difference. I, I you know, when, when, when big tech and big content sit down to make a meal of Europe, it doesn't matter who gets the bigger piece. Hmm. And so this has been a normative success. But let me turn the question around, because what you're talking about here is rebellion against a change to the status quo, which would make things worse. Now, that seems very important. And I don't know much about this directive, but as you describe it, that seems very, very pernicious. So best of luck in your campaign against it. But what about substantively regulating this space? Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking for now about political constraints, which obviously are important. But in order to understand what political constraints are, I have to go a step back and think about, well, what would the ideal set of regulations and norms around that stuff be? I mean, what sets of understandings should we come to both socially and politically in order to make sure that tech has a liberating impact rather than controlling people and capturing them in the way you've been talking about? So where would you start to look for that? So I like to divide this problem into two pieces Mm -hmm. because it's a big problem. The first one is what shouldn't we do so that we can solve our problems? And the second thing is what are the solutions? And I'm sorry to say I have a lot more insight into what we shouldn't do than what we should. That said, I think that the reason for that is what we shouldn't do tends to be pretty universal, whereas what we should do is very situational and will change from moment to moment. So, for example, it should never be illegal to tell people if there is a defect in a product that they use. And so we should clear all legal obstacles to that so that we can know whether or not 
a product is defective. And, and this presumably, having just read Bad Blood, which is just this incredible account of what went wrong with Elizabeth mm. Holmes and the Farinos debacle, mm, mm-hmm. um, has to involve some reform of non-disclosure agreements. Because what you saw over and over again in that story is, you know, reasonably uh, noble, courageous people joining the company, figuring out what's wrong with it, quitting on a matter of principle, even though they potentially stood to make a lot of money relatively quickly. But then the extent of the non-disclosure agreements was such that actually telling enough people about the fraud that was going on there would have exposed them to such legal liability that they just weren't able to take that risk. Sure. And you see that in LuxLeaks and UBS Leaks and lots of other domains too. And of course, one of the other big problems here is non-compete, because even where there's not an enforceable non-disclosure, if you aren't allowed to work for anyone who competes with your employer for three years, which is increasingly common, not just in high tech, mostly outside of California, where California thankfully doesn't have enforceable non-competes, but say in Massachusetts, where non-competes are very enforceable, then your employer can basically say, we will not release you from your non-compete. You will have to exit the industry for three years, which in tech is a thousand years. If we don't release you from this onerous non-compete that you non-consensually signed when you came in to work for us. And so, yeah, there's lots of these structural impediments. There's also end-user license agreements, there's trade secrecy, and Basically, I would say that you should have an absolute defense that's a public interest defense when if you violate any of these rules. Mm. And, and I think that that's a pretty easy legislative fix. And it also is a good framing. I think one of the key ways to make legislative initiatives work is to have a framing that changes the normative discussion. So if you say to people... So just to make sure that I understand this, so what you're saying is you should be allowed to have non-disclosure agreements, for sure. You might be allowed to have certain forms of non-compete, but there should be this argument that just trumps any of your obligations. So when a journalist comes to you and says, hey, I've heard weird mutterings about Farinos, is everything going all right there? Uh, So this is not you going to a competing startup, it's you talking to a journalist who has a public interest reason in investigating this. You can say, yes, this is all of the things I saw. It's really screwed up. So I would say that without regard to whether or not non-competes are a good idea, mm-hmm. that one way to eliminate a specific harm from non-competes, especially in highly concentrated industries, is to have an absolute defense in the form of public interest. It's like slap suits or anti-slap statutes. What are anti-slap statutes? The anti-slap statutes allow parties in civil litigation to argue that the litigation was brought solely to suppress information that was in the public interest and gives them access to a streamlined system of justice where if they can show that there's a colorable case that they wanted to disclose something in the public interest and that they were being stopped you know, through a kind of pr- legal pretense and was hoping to spend them into penury so that they wouldn't talk about something that the public otherwise had the right to know, then the judge can just dismiss the case without having to go through the whole legal process, which might take years or decades. And without having to say which statutes should we have or how should they be contoured about when you're allowed to talk about people and disclose facts about them or talk about companies and criticize them, you can say very broadly that whatever the contours of those statutes are, we are carving out this public interest exemption. So I I don't know about non-competes. So that's one of the ways to fix a part of the existing system that is a problem. What about, and I know you said you have more things in this category than the other category, but what about the, the, the soaring solution? Do you have any for us? 
I think that the solutions emerge, right? So from the negative space of what we shouldn't do, you should always be allowed to reconfigure your devices to suit your needs and people should be able to sell or give you the tools to reconfigure your devices. So you should be allowed to know if your device is behaving in a way that runs counter to your interests and you should be able to change it. And I should be able to sell or give you the tools to change it. Again, as a like an absolute defense against things like patents and torts and whatever, if what you want to do is make your device work in your interest and not the interest of the manufacturer, you shouldn't be required to arrange your affairs to the benefit of the shareholder. And then there's this kind of maybe naive libertarian trust that if you let people decide how to arrange their affairs rather than binding them to arranging their affairs to benefit the manufacturer's shareholders, that they will on average, over time, idiosyncratically arrange their affairs in ways that do benefit them. Mm. And if they don't, that the fact that we're allowed to talk about, freely discuss the problems with it, that disclosing defects is always lawful, and that we're allowed to provide these existence proofs in the form of alternative configurations, software, tools, or what have you, filters that allow them to do so, that gets you a long way down the road. It doesn't solve all of the problems, but it gets you a long way down the road. I mean, think about like ad blocking. Ad blocking is the most widespread consumer revolt in human history. Tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people are ad blocking. And one of the reasons that ad blocking exists is that the technologies that it's blocking predate the evolution of these legal regimes that might otherwise prevent it. Hmm. And we're seeing the tightening of a noose around that. Like Google this week made an announcement about a very complex technical change that will require ad blockers to go much further to affect ad blocking on behalf Hmm. of the browser's owner. And it will give Google all kinds of causes of action if they wanted to enforce it. And so, you know, we may see Google suing companies or we just may see companies exiting ad blocking for Chrome because no one wants to fund a company that will end up on the wrong side of a lawsuit with Google. Hmm. And so as a publisher, I'm really interested in ad blocking. One of the things I do is I own a commercial web business called Boing Boing. It's a widely read technology and culture website. And we are supported by ads. And we are in a very marked negotiating disadvantage with advertisers who have access to much more inventory than they need to advertise their products. And as a result, over time, monotonically, our ability to resist more intrusive forms of advertising has been reduced. We Mm -hmm. don't have the market power to do it. But one of the things that we've seen is that consumer revolts can go a long way. That if we can say to our advertisers, Yes, you can do this intrusive advertising, but the more intrusive it is, the lower the chances of someone ever seeing it, because the higher the chances that it will be ad blocked, Hmm. then that solves the problem for us. So listen, you know, this is a podcast which is primarily around politics, and we've obviously talked about politics in all kinds of ways throughout this conversation. And we've talked about Cambridge Analytica, we've talked about Donald Trump at certain points. But I want to end perhaps on your large scale view of what you take to be the relationship between the rise of technology and phenomena like the rise of far-right populism, people like Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, and whether there's ways we can use technology to fight against it. I want to go back to epistemological incoherence to answer that. I think that we live in a moment in which it's easy to believe that the system is rigged, because I think the system is rigged. And I don't think that technology rigged the system, and I don't think that technology will unrig the system. And I think that trying to convince people that the system isn't rigged when it is, is probably a losing game. 
I think that what technology is best for in this moment, the technology we have available to us, is allowing people to form groups to undertake collective efforts. And, you know, there is this saying, they have the dollars, we have the people, that if you can use technology to stitch together political groups who engage with the issues, then you can start to reverse the much broader trends, trends towards monopolism, trends towards oligarchy, trends away from evidence-led policy, you know, for example, the trend towards supply side and consumer harm standards and antitrust and so on. And that that may restore a discourse in which we can say, actually, migrants mostly are net positive on every axis you care to name, eugenics is rubbish, and all the other things that are currently on the wane. And I know that that's not a crisp answer because it's not a crisply defined problem. It's a big, mushy problem that was a long time in the making. And you know, one of the things that as a computer person, I have a fake computer science degree, an honorary computer science degree, that I know is that oftentimes we are confronted by landscapes that are more complicated than we can plot a trail across. And when we get to those, we use a technique called hill climbing, where we analogize to, say, an ant that has forward-facing eyes and lots of legs, but it can't look up and it can't find where the high ground is. All it can do is see which foot is standing on higher ground and step one step in that direction and then reassess whether there's another step that takes it to higher ground Mm. still. And that in this way, we can attain whatever pinnacle is most local to us. It may be not the highest peak, but it's the highest peak that we can reach from the ground we're on at the moment. And that when you don't know the terrain, when the terrain isn't knowable, then trying to plot a course across it is a waste of time. It it guarantees that the first casualty of your battle will be the plan of attack. And that rather than doing that, having heuristics that you can use to figure out where to go to next, to figure out whether you need norms or law or codes or markets to take your next step up the hill towards a peak, that's a much more viable solution. And I think technology affords us new ways of doing all of those things. Hmm. That, that's that's a surprisingly inspiring ending to a mostly not for your thought depressing conversation. Yeah, uh, I hope that it'll help to to guide listeners a little bit. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Corey. Thank you. And I just want to leave you with one last word. It's the title of my favorite law review article by Michael Weinberg from when he was at Public Knowledge. He was talking about 3D printing and copyright. His title was, this will all be so great if we don't fuck it up. (laughs) You know, truer words never spoken. That should be our watchword. It will all be so great if we don't fuck it up. Well, hopefully you've helped us with some of the understanding we need to make sure that we don't fuck it up. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Yasha. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you two have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Since it's flu season, write The Good Fight on all of the medication you give out to your patients. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newmarker.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.